This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Lawrence Juber, and what can I say? He is one of the world's great guitarists, uh, renowned on his own right. He toured with Paul McCartney and Wings. Uh, he's played on just about everything in the world. If you like the... Um, the theme to James Bond, The Spy Who Loved Me, or The Roseanne Show, that's him playing. He's been a session player with countless, countless albums, um, and and just as, as knowledgeable about music as, as anyone in the world. Um, more than just a guitarist, he's a musicologist and a, a historian of music. He basically sat here with a guitar in his lap for 90 minutes and illustrated various things uh, throughout our conversation. If you stick around for the podcast extras, you'll hear him not only play three songs, but demonstrate pieces of um, various other songs. I have a buddy who is a guitar aficionado sitting in the um, control room listening to the whole conversation, and I'm not going to be able to get the grin off his face for about six months. So with no further ado, my session with LJ Lawrence Juber. My extra special guest this week is Lawrence Juber. Born and raised in London, he began playing guitar at age 13. He graduated university where he was immediately picked up as a session guitarist with famed producer George Martin. Later, he's invited to play with Paul McCartney's band Wings for their 1970s tour. He has been a studio musician on thousands of sessions played for numerous television and film soundtracks. When you hear this theme to James Bond, The Spy Who Loved Me, you're listening to Lawrence's work. Voted Guitarist of the Year, top acoustic players of all time by numerous magazines. He has 24, 25 solo albums since 1982 and has won two Grammys. No less a guitarist than Pete Townsend has called him a master. Lawrence Juber, welcome back to Bloomberg. Oh, thank you, Barry. One TV show that you won't be hearing my work on any longer is Roseanne. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Was that your work on yeah. the show? Oh, yeah. That's you. On the original. I played on the orig first six years of the original show. Uh-huh. And, and now that... on the reboot also. So yeah. I'm going to guess that those uh, royalties are going to stop coming in. Well, you don't get a lot of royalties from that. There is a musicians' union fund that covers secondary markets on television and movies. Mm -hmm. So a very small percentage of the distributor's gross goes into this fund, which then gets distributed amongst all the musicians that played on it. So I played on, for example, Pocahontas. Right. You know, there were... You know, hundreds, hundreds of yeah, players. There's a full so, orchestra. Yeah, I mean, it was like 80-piece orchestra and all of that stuff. All right, yeah. So I'm going to guess it's a little different for, let's say, Bare Naked Ladies playing the theme song to the Big Bang. That's different. I remember having a discussion with Danny Elfman, you because know, originally when Fox was simply syndicated and not a network, mm -hmm. you know, and that's when The Simpsons started. Right. That Danny said that he was shocked when he started getting royalties from Saturday morning cartoon shows. Uh -huh. I, think, I forget what it was he scored, but it, how much bigger those were from the network shows than he was getting from The Simpsons. And wow. of course, eventually The Simpsons became, you know, 
a full on network. A full on network. Uh, Fox became a network, and then you know that's a worldwide thing. But that you know that's ASCAP and BMI. I mean mm-hmm. that those royalties come through that. For musicians, there's a SAG AFTRA fund that was set up recently that's picking up stuff from foreign markets and and um, other areas, and then. There is the secondary markets fund, which is, you know, so if you're a musician, if you're a violinist who plays on multiple movie scores, mm-hmm. you know, once a year you get a, a reasonable check. I mean, it all kind of, you know, helps oil the wheels of being a, a, in the gig economy. So, so let's talk a little bit about that. I was going to discuss some of your early uh, history, but we could circle back to that. How have things changed in terms of compensation for musicians, and we should really discuss the possible changes in copyright rules. Since the last time you were here, Mm -hmm. there were a number of big cases decided, and you pretty much predicted them all dead on. (laughs) Okay, uh, different hats. Um, Let me put on my father hat, my dad hat, because my daughter Ilse has become quite successful as a songwriter. Mm Mm-hmm. She has a cut on Beyonce's album. She had um, oh, Sean Mendes' Mercy that was a hit last year. She wrote that. Um, a, a, a bunch of stuff. And she's working with like you know, the highest Beyonce doesn't get much bigger yeah. than that. And where it affects her is the, the migration to streaming rather than physical sales mm-hmm. has had an impact because the... Writers share coming from the mechanical royalties, you know, that 9.1 cents per track per album or single. So that's sold. That, yeah, because those sales don't happen. Right. The streaming revenue is quite different because the the royalty structure on streaming is actually because of the the Digital Millennium Act from the Mm -hmm. 1990s. That's tilted towards performers. Right. Rather than the writers, so the performers, I get more money from my cover tunes being played on Pandora, for example, right. than I do from my my own stuff uh, as a as a writer. Um, I don't get very, you know it's a fractional royalty. But is that is that appropriate? Shouldn't we be re- rewarding the creators of content as, as a to- as a well, but a, but a pr- 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 a performer is a creator of content. Okay. I mean, and you go back to terrestrial radio, and still to this day, performers don't get any royalty from terrestrial radio. I mean, that's a big bone of contention. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas they do from streaming. Um, whereas on terrestrial, the writers get a, a significant, the writers and publishers get a significant share, uh, but the performers don't. So that was why performers started putting their names on compositions. You know, Elvis didn't write Heartbreak Hotel. Right. He just, you know, um, his manager made sure that his name was on there. So let's talk about the shrinking of the creative space, as, as you've described it. Some of the new copyright rules that haven't passed legislation in the U.S. yet, as well as some of the court cases, have really hemmed in what creators can do. And, and going back to Ilse, my daughter, I mean, she won't listen to Top 40 Radio. Because she doesn't want to be influenced by what her peers are currently writing, so she's you know she's listening to she's listening to oldies mm-hmm. stuff and you know like legacy stuff because you have to be very careful not to subconsciously reproduce something that's you know currently in in 
out there. Is it easy to get something stuck in your head and have it just it find easy. its way? It is easy. And you don't realize it sometimes that stuff's creeping in. Well, that Tom Petty case with uh, Sam. Well, um, but, well, but that, you know, uh, and that's where the creative space shrinks to the extent that there are certain formulas. There are certain melodic formulas that so... Give us an example. Well, that's an example. The, mm-hmm. the, the Tom Petty one with, with Sam Smith, that, that it was... You can go to that space very easily without realizing that you're stepping on somebody else's mm-hmm. copyright. That's where the legal system kind of is an equalizer with that. Where it becomes a problem and, and a very, very dangerous step is when you start talking about groove, when mm-hmm. you start talking about rhythm. The because, Blurred Lines case? Yeah. Because that's it. And there's very mystifying stuff about the Blurred Lines case because it was based on the sheet music. And yet, the decisions were made on the basis of, of the groove, which is not contained in the sheet music, right. as part of it, anyway. And, and it's understandable, but, but not in the strict copyright sense. Mm-hmm. But, but when you go back in history, one thing that you, you really cannot copyright is, is harmonic sequences. Because you can go back to the Renaissance and find chord sequences that are still in use today. An example of that being, there's a, uh, a, a sequence called the Passamezzo Moderno. Passamezzo mm-hmm. being a, a dance move. It's like a, a step and a half. Um, and the, that sequence is like, it's one, four, one, five, one, four, one, five, one. Mm-hmm. Now that, in Elizabethan England, became known as the Gregory Walker. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting story. Thomas Morley, who was a composer, referred to it as such because a Gregory was, a, was actually a barbershop. It was mm-hmm. a slang expression for a barbershop. And if you walked into a barbershop, there would be instruments hanging on the wall. And, you know, so you're waiting, instead of reading a magazine, because they didn't have Just take a, they didn't have, a uh, guitar people, off the wall and yeah. start playing? You, you, well, a, a guitar lute? or a lute or whatever. And that was the chord sequence that would be played. So if you walked into a Gregory, that's what you would hear. It was so common. It was like huh. the 12-bar blues uh-huh. of, of the, the Renaissance era. That's still being used. I mean, they're, they're going to put me in the movies. They're going to make a big star out of me. You know, it's that sequence. Even I saw her standing there is basically that sequence uh-huh. uh, when the saints go marching in. And, and there are certain sequences that are used. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of Australian guys that put together all the songs that use one particular sequence that has been on hit records for the last 50 years. And, and so when you start dealing with harmony, then you're really in trouble because there's only so many harmonic moves and it's like trying to copyright grammar it's like saying well wait a minute you wrote a novel and it's full of sentences (laughs) therefore we own that copyright that's you you don't have the right to do that i mean it's that basic and that's kind of where it was going with um with the the stairway to heaven was that that particular sequence was a fairly generic sequence that you could actually track back to the early baroque we were discussing some of the copyright issues that have come up, and you referenced the risk when we start copywriting the equivalent of grammar in music and mentioned mm-hmm. some of the earlier Baroque um, chords that everybody seems to use, kind of hard to copyright. Well, yeah, you can't copyright that. 
and same reason you can't copyright groove. It's just it's it's too it's too generic. It's too much part of the fabric of music. I'm you know I'm wearing my musicologist mm -hmm. hat now because I. I, when I went to college, I studied music and musicology. I didn't actually study guitar. I didn't do like a conservatory route. Mm -hmm. I was always self-taught on guitar. I oh, just, really? That's I wanted to learn music and music history and just the whole context of it. So, so when you look at some of the copyright cases that have been around, how often do you see something and say, oh, yeah, that's from the 1500s or... Is well, that overstating I'm, it? Well, that's overstating it a little bit. I mean, you know, most of the copyright cases that have gained the, the copyright cases that have gained news recently really are just in that kind of blurred lines, stairway to heaven kind of realm. Now, it didn't help with with Zeppelin that they have a history of mm -hmm. purloining other people's compositions, mm -hmm. and over the years they've they've had to start giving you know giving credit to the people that they they borrowed from. Now, you go back. To before there was copyright, and it was just perfectly common for composers to take particular melodic phrases. Or, um, I mean, Bach would borrow German folk songs or drinking songs all the time. He was writing a cantata for the Sunday morning service. He wanted a melody that the congregation would instantly recognize mm -hmm. and not have to compose something from from scratch. So, a drinking song shows up in in church. Is that what it he could did? be? Uh, very much so. Yeah, it could <laughs> be the peasant cantata. You know, it's, that's that's that kind of approach. And there are certain generic sequences that were always used because they were familiar. In the Baroque era, there was a, a, a sequence called the Folia mm -hmm. that. Um, that particular sequence was all used all the way through to Beethoven, Rachmaninoff used it. I mean, it was just, it was a standard sequence with its own melody attached. And then you get the, the what was uh, known as the, the Andalusian cadence, which is... And if you think of the number of tunes, sure. like, you know, Walk, Don't Run and, and Run Away and all these songs that use that sequence there's no copyright on that you it's got a very cinematic feel you could see it just well, yeah. before a sword fight or something yeah. like that yeah i mean it's <laughs> it's got that spanish thing to it but uh, but i mean i found examples of that going back to you know the mid 1500s mm -hmm. i've been transcribing loop pieces for a, i'm doing a folio on the evolution of fingerstyle guitar for, for Hal Leonard. And I've gone back to the earliest piece I have is 1507. Wow. I so, wouldn't attempt to play it right now. So <laughs> from lute, it, yeah. how do you get from lute to a modern guitar? What are the intervening well, steps? You're dealing with the basic concept of an instrument with a long neck and frets mm -hmm. and strings. I mean, that's, that's a, a, a kind of a generic instrument. It's in organology, which is a study of instruments, it's, that's a long-necked lute, even if it's not actually a, like the bowl-backed mm -hmm. lute of the Renaissance. So there are various other instruments that kind of develop parallel with it. The earliest guitar you get is, earliest illustration is about 1485. Really? That, that far back? Well, they go back earlier, but they're not specifically guitar. They're gitterns and sitterns and similar instruments. But in the Renaissance, the lute was the dominant instrument, except in Spain, which had the vihuela, which looked like a guitar, but was actually strung like a lute. And, and mm -hmm. all you have to do... 
right. you change one string, it goes from lute to guitar. and you're in you're in lute tuning. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, that's guitar tuning. I mean, it's it's so you can play those kinds of pieces. It evolved from the Renaissance, which was a small instrument, almost like a ukulele. The Baroque guitar added an extra string, so you went from four strings or four courses, because they were double strings uh-huh. usually, to five. And then round about 1780, you get to the six-string guitar. So the modern guitar really dates from then. But, but you can track the history of fretted instruments that were played with the fingers, going back even to the medieval era. I mean, there's, uh, there was a, a John the Luter was, was on the royal rolls in England getting four shillings a week in like 1285. I mean, it goes back that far. The professional Luter. The professional Luter. From the, yeah. from the royal court. Yeah. That, that's fascinating. So you mentioned earlier that the space for creators of mm-hmm. all types is getting hemmed in and shrinking a little bit. H- how are we seeing that manifest itself in modern times? Well, I, the the main manifestation of it is is the way that sampling has has kind of created this collaborative, collective environment for writing, which is why you might see a dozen writers on a song, because I, sometimes the, the songs are just created in a very... Um, fractional way where somebody will write the hook and then somebody else will write the verse and and maybe a producer or two will come up with beats and it it you know so all those elements are are now embedded in the copyright. It mm-hmm. used to be that it was simply melody and lyrics and mm-hmm. and that's still what the law says. But the convention since hip hop really the convention is that if you contribute to the the actual track that that gives you a writer's share. But a lot of the people that are doing that aren't musicians. They they know how to manipulate sounds, but they're not necessarily musical. Producers, um, engineers, anyone who's... Well, engineers who's... typically don't get part of that, but they will be in the Music Modernization Act. Mm-hmm. They're going to create a royalty for producers and for engineers. But if it's anything like what the musicians get from the sound exchange side of it, as a session musician there's 5% is devoted to, to the, the background people, as opposed to 50% to the record label, 45% to the performer. But the way that that gets tracked is very difficult because sound exchange can only learn it from either the meta information that goes in the spreadsheet that's submitted with the recording. Wow. Or they get it from the musician's union, from the musician's union contracts, but very few records go through the union. You know, the union is much stronger on the TV and movie side of things than it is on the record side of things. Why, why do you think that is, having it's worked just the in nature, all fields? Well, it's, uh, part of it is the nature of the way records are made. Mm-hmm. And part of it is if you're going to put together an orchestra to play on a movie, you really need to have the union involved in that right. because there are scales, There's you know, uh, which is why producers have been going to Prague and to Budapest and to you know, Seattle to do stuff non-union because they don't then have to deal with the other ramification of it, which is what I mentioned earlier, which is the secondary markets fund where they, they resent having to give this minute portion to the musicians, even though the Teamsters get their share and you know right. the other unions get their share. The musicians have always been kind of you know, shunted off to the side. Yeah. Huh. That, that's yeah. fascinating. But, but in terms of the creative space, I just think that 
there are certain generic sequences that are built into music making, and at some point, if you start to to make those copyrightable, then you really limit what can be done. Let's talk a little bit about some of the unusual tunings that you do uh-huh. that allow you to play things that a regular guitar really can't play. And uh, during the break, you moved over to dadgad tuning. Yeah. What does dadgad do that the regular standard guitar tuning doesn't allow? Well, this is dadgad, which gives me three D strings. And two A strings and a G string, which means that, for one thing, I have the kind of sound of octaves mm-hmm. that is like a twelve, almost like a twelve string. Mm-hmm. And then, because there are two adjacent scale tones, a G and an A, that gives me the opportunity to do these kind of cascading. Mm-hmm. Patterns, which actually, interestingly enough, is one of the things that's characteristic of Baroque guitar. Because mm-hmm. on the Baroque guitar, like on a ukulele, the bottom two strings were often tuned up an octave. Uh-huh. So you get this kind of cross-fingering where, where like things can sustain. So instead of... It gives it a different kind of texture. Mm-hmm. But I just found that it's great for articulating pop songs. Really? You want me to play something for sure. an example? Mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier, I mentioned um, Runaway mm-hmm. as being an example of the Andalusian cadence. And That's wonderful, and for people who are just listening to this and not viewing it, you're simultaneously playing the melody, the vocals, and the background rhythm uh-huh. all at the same time. Yeah. There's no overdubs. This is live. You right. just basically pulled the guitar out and started playing that. We're, not, is, we're not running multiple loops or anything. Which is what fingerstyle guitar is. It's the ability to play all the parts. Because you're using the thumb and, and you know, typically three, the three mm-hmm. principal right-hand fingers. And then being in that tuning also gives me the capability of, of allowing some of the middle, st- the inner parts to, to work more, more resonantly mm-hmm. uh, than, they, than they would in standard tuning. And that's because you have the three G's and three it's D's part and of the it, two yeah, A's. It's part of it. It's just, it's, and it's a suspended tuning. Whereas standard tuning is actually kind of an E minor 
tuning. So mm -hmm. it, it kind of is more self-defining, whereas with Dagat, it, there's, there, you don't have a major third in the tuning. That's the beauty of standard tuning is it does have that third in it, which makes major chords actually flow in a very interesting fashion. And mm -hmm. you go back again to the Baroque, and they had a system where they laid out all the chords and you could learn how to play rhythm guitar, strum guitar, just by following this, what they called alphabeto system. Mm -hmm. um, and you learn the shapes. In Dagad, it's not really about shapes. For me, it's, it's, that's the discovery mechanism, you, is to find the, the inner workings of the, the song within that tuning. You've described that as a vertical approach as opposed to a horizontal approach. Right. Yeah, because the... I'm looking at what's happening on every particular beat rather than a very, like, a more linear kind of approach. So, because I'm trying to develop, like, a richness, bring out the sonority of the guitar so that it doesn't, the sound doesn't die, but it keeps going so that it has its own internal life. So how does that compare with other instruments such as a piano where you pretty much have every note right there in front well, of you? Well, there you go. You know, it's the, the whole spectrum is right there in front of you on the piano, on the guitar. You have to have kind of a virtual piano in your head, mm -hmm. at least the spectrum, the, the, you know, the, the spectrum of instruments. And this is something that I try and encourage music teachers to understand is that their guitar players are actually more musically cognizant than, than their piano players may be because on the guitar you really have to understand if you really want to advance with it you have to understand how the notes relate to each other mm -hmm. whereas on the piano you can pretty much just look at the 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 fingering patterns and just follow that um, but if you want to really do something original on the guitar it then it's understanding its musical um, capabilities um you said something earlier i have to circle back to because it was it was so fascinating on streaming, I believe it was, when you're doing a cover song, you get paid more than an original composition? Well, not, it depends on how much it gets played. I mean, okay. for, for example, this week, my number one play on Pandora is Stand By Me. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, usually it's my Christmas the, music. Was that Benny King? Yeah. Um, uh, but I did a cover of it. In fact, it got used in a, a De Beers Diamond commercial some uh -huh. years ago, uh, which was kind of a nice license fee for that. So the um, commercial license fees are more. Well, than that's a, yeah, that's a whole different piece of business. But mm -hmm. but it, what I mean by the fact is that cover tunes tend to get more attention. Mm -hmm. I mean, and also the Christmas stuff because that's twenty five percent of the entire music market is Christmas. Really, music. Yeah. that's astonishing. Yeah. And, a and quarter, then people a listen quarter. to that stuff all year round too. No, and I was very lucky in in so far as my early stuff got into the Pandora ecosystem. It's, uh -huh. Now it's much harder to get in. Yes, um, but it, you know, stuff creeps in. But but it's it's only on, in terms. Of, I mean, the amount that one makes. For the play, as a performer, it doesn't matter whether it's original right. or, or a cover tune. And, and the amount that I make as a writer on the original stuff is not of any great consequence compared with what I make as a performer. But cover tunes, same thing with iTunes. Cover tunes just get more attention. So they'll capture... And You know, that's fascinating because I have a pet theory about cover songs, and it's simply... A note-for-note -note cover song, especially for something we know as well as the Beatles, mm -hmm. is pointless because 
why do I need to hear the identical version someone else has done? On the other hand, most of the ones that are really far out in right field, uh, it, it doesn't even sound like the original song. Maybe Joe Cocker's Get By With A Little Help From My Friend is, <laughs> is the, uh, the outlier there. But what I've always loved about your cover work is it's immediately recognizable as the underlying song, but it's such a different version of it that it makes it fresh and interesting. So I would Thank imagine you. your cover songs would do really well on, uh, on iTunes. Well, that's the art of it, really. Is For me, it's, it's to take the familiar and do something slightly unfamiliar with it. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, using these altered tunings and, and just bringing my sensibility to it on the guitar. And there are plenty of tunes that I won't do because I don't feel that I can make enough of a difference with to justify doing that. So they end up, you know, they have to be, there has to be something special about them. And there's always a, in the process, like when I was doing Strawberry Fields Forever and, mm -hmm. and it was um, just the fact that... Um, just get that sonority you know it, it, it works especially you can't do that in standard tune right but the way that it works on the guitar just puts it into its own creative space and that's what I'm looking for as an artist is can I make a contribution? Can I do something that gives people maybe a different perspective on on a familiar composition? Well, that was my experience with, as a, look, I grew up a huge Beatle fan, mm -hmm. heartbroken, out comes wings. Yeah, there's a handful of fun songs. Uncle, yeah. Uncle Admiral, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, Admiral. Yeah, yeah, Uncle Albert. Uh, Admiral Halsey, Uncle yeah. Albert. Right. And then there were a lot of sort of poppy love songs that I, I didn't Silly really, love songs. Yeah. yeah, to say the <laughs> least. But your um, Wings album is very revealing of some lovely nuances with the oh, melody. My, my one wing. Yeah. One wing that yeah. I completely missed the first time I heard them mm -hmm. as Paul McCartney. But the under your version, the songs really okay. breathe and come to life. I, I, I think, you know, bringing... A musical sensibility mm -hmm. to it, so I'm not just simply doing kind of a, re, a like a reproduction. Of right, it. it's not a note for note but, identical but getting imitation. Inside, basically, um, kind of really trying to rewrite it from from the inside out. In the, the, there's a I forget the Borges novel where there's a character who whose mission is to rewrite Don Quixote, mm -hmm. but not just to copy it, but to actually like imagine it from the ground up and have it be exact, exactly the same. And it's, it's not quite that, because I'm not trying to you know, recreate it in that respect, but just to reinterpret it, to, to do it in a way that brings some fresh perspective to you, it. You reveal a musicality to some of those songs that I think the original version either doesn't emphasize or, or you're just not hearing it in the rock and roll version. And the, I think that's an important point in terms of the way in which existing copyrights can be utilized. You know, when, I mean, let's face it, you know, the whole copyright thing, the mechanical license came out of gramophone records. And gramophone records came out of 
print publishing. I mean, they, they sold records in order to sell sheet music. Right. Um, but when you think about how many different versions of songs existed in that time period, that, you know, somebody would do a, a song and then there would be half a dozen covers of it. You know, different artists would do it, and it was very common for different artists to do songs. And then you get to the Beatle era, you get to the 60s, and, and rock music, pop music as, as an art form which is unique to those artists. Right. And, and that, you know, a lot of that went away, that you didn't get three different versions of the same song on the charts at the same time. You just had that one definitive version. Um, and I think that there's there's a very rich heritage of music to draw on, to re reinvigorate, for example. It, I, I've always so when you talk about the earlier period, um, you're referring to what on this side of the uh, Atlantic we call the Great American Songbook, which is everybody from Ella Fitzgerald to Frank Sinatra and, to, and earlier to early Bing Crosby. To mm -hmm. I mean, you're still. You know, mid twenties is still in in copyright. I mean, mm -hmm. the early twenties is now you know is now out Coming, of copyright. Yeah, it's a nine, what is it 90? ninety years? I think it is. Whatever it is, it's it's now at the point where you know some of the great American songbook, the early Irving Berlin stuff, for example. You know, Alexander's and, Ragtime Band is public domain. And, and the irony is, the the sixties and seventies changed that, and then you ended up with a lot of those artists. Doing the Great American Songbook, whether it's Rod Stewart or Paul McCartney, <laughs> right, it's yeah. a, it's circled full full around. And so, I refer to it as the Great Anglo-American Songbook mm -hmm. at this point because when I was growing up in the '60s, the '30s was only 30 years earlier. You go back right. 30 years from now, and you're in what the you know, '80s, the '80s, the '90s, um, and going back. To you know, what, I guess the, the the Great American Songbook is a canon, mm -hmm. like the classical canon is a sure. canon, and and we have a rock canon too. I mean, you know, Layla is mm -hmm. part of the rock canon. The Beatles is part of the rock canon, and that it's not that music's not going to go away, and it, and and it's it it is a rich vein of, of reinterpretation. Maybe you're a string quartet and you do Layla. You know, you can you can cross fertilize those kinds of genres. So do you think the music of that era, the sixties and seventies and beyond, is going to have the same sort of staying power as we've seen uh, in the twenties, thirties, forties? I think I think it will. I think it does. Mm -hmm. it, uh, certainly, you know, there's always a certain amount of attrition. Sure. And there are certain gems that, that kind of just fell off the radar. For really? People. Look, I just discovered Margot Gorian, for example. You, you, you look at me quizzically. I'm perplexed. Margot Gorian was kind of, if you could combine Brian Wilson with Astrid Gilberto. Okay. In a power pop context, she had a very breathy voice. She wrote very kind of psychedelic influenced um, pop songs. Uh, Oliver had a, a hit with a song of her Sunday morning back in oh, the sure. 60s. Oh, yeah. sure. I remember that Well, song. that's one of her songs. She made one album and then quit the business. Uh, but I just discovered her music, and it's, it's like very cool. And that's one great thing about the streaming environment is how much music you can discover and how you, you can curate your own musical environment. Have you, have you worked out any Margot songs yet on no, guitar? No, not yet, no. 
So um, I, I, I'm right now. I'm working on a, a bunch of standards. Actually, I've uh-huh. got my own great American songbook mm-hmm. uh, stuff that I'm working on. So um, well, you'll have you'll have to give us a sample before uh, before the morning's over. Well, maybe when the next when that album comes out, I'll come <laughs> and give you some samples. Yeah. So so given given the changes that we've seen in music in modern era with hip hop and sampling, what does it mean to somebody who earns their living? playing a live stringed instrument. It, it doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. I mean, those things coexist. And, you know, Ilse, my daughter, you know, the songwriter, I mean, she's been on plenty of sessions where it's guys sitting around with laptops, right? you know, creating beats. But she's right now working with Mark Ronson, who's you know, one sure. of the, the great contemporary guys. And it's very organic. You know, mm-hmm. she sits down and play drums on, on, you know, on the song. Um, that's, that's that combination of the tech side of things with the organic side of things, I think is, is where it's, where the vitality is mm-hmm. in all of it, that there's a lot of talent out there. Um, but you just want to make sure that you don't have the kind of copyright restrictions that inhibit the creativity. You know, it's one thing to listen to a Motown record to kind of gather the groove mm-hmm. of that. It's another thing to then get sued because you've <laughs> taken a groove that really is is not a copyrightable, at the time wasn't a copyrightable entity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Wall of Sound is not copyrightable or at least hasn't uh, been. Wall of Sound is just a lot of reverb. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot of reverb on top of reverb. And, and it's a lot of musicians. I mean, on a Phil Spector session, you got to the chorus. If you needed more piano, you brought in another piano player. <laughs> you know, now you, you know, you, you know, that was when they were working on four track. Now you right. can, you know, you can overdub a second piano or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, but the technology is great. I mean, I just did a, um, a track with Marcy Levy, who's a, a friend of mine, who a neighbor, uh, who used to work with Eric Clapton and was in a band called Shakespeare's Sister in England who mm-hmm. had some big hits there. And she, she gave me a, a, a logic file, like an Apple logic file, that I then trans, uh, tr- like put into Pro Tools and then started fooling around with and added some guitar and changed the arrangement. And then we went in the studio on Monday with Clem Burke from Blondie playing drums and mm-hmm. walked out with a record. You know, and so that technology is great because it's not as limited as it used to be where we were working with tape. And, and now the, the plugins have really evolved to the point where you can get a very analog sound out of the dig- digital can you, can you stick around a little bit? I have a ton more sure. questions. And, you bet. And I'd love to get a couple of uh, couple more songs out of you. Uh, we have been speaking with Lawrence Juber, a guitarist extraordinaire and a recording artist. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and come back and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things uh, musicology. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com. You could follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast, Lawrence. Thank you so much for doing this. I always enjoy when you come into town. And this will broadcast after 
Um, we've recorded this, but I'm going to see you tonight uh, at the the cutting, uh, room. the cutting room, which is always a lovely place to see. Cool place. You know? Yeah, it's kind. Of, it's a nice, intimate place. I, I I've seen enough um, shows and places where you're so far away from the performer and everybody's a tiny person, and and you happen to have a a charming uh, rapport with the audience. You, oh, thank you, you. You all but take questions. We went to see Paul Simon at the Hollywood Bowl last week. I saw him when he started the tour last year in Forest Hills. Yeah, he put on a very interesting show. Fun show, 14-piece band. Mm-hmm. Great, great band. He does. And Ringo was sitting right in front of us. Really? Yeah, I hadn't seen him in a long time. Oh, that must have been fun. Yeah. He, um, I, someone described this as pretty much his, his last tour. He said uh, oh, yeah. his voice is going, and he said he's this didn't, is going to be... You know, it didn't sound like it. I mean, he was still... in. In great shape, I thought. Any any old Simon and Garfunkel songs that yeah. he did? I mean, he did Homeward Bound. He did mm-hmm. um, Sounds of Silence. Opened with America. Oh, really? Yeah. So I don't know if you know the band Aztec Two-Step. I know who they are, yeah. So they do a version of the Simon and Garfunkel songbook based on the print book mm-hmm. that a DJ named Pete Fornatal... Mm-hmm. Uh, wrote about them. I remember them. Pete Fornatelli. I was interviewed by him. Was yeah. it? Um, he passed the, away a couple N-E-W, of years ago. Yeah, that's right. WNEW in New York. And so he created this this book about. He wrote a book about them, and they subsequently adapted it and with with images and streaming video and other stuff. At they're basically telling the Simon and Garfunkel story through their music. It was really quite quite fascinating. And I through that show i discovered a guy who was one of the and i'm drawing a blank on his name it'll come into my mind who was one of the original writers for saturday night live who's written on curb your enthusiasm mm-hmm. and uh-huh. uh, and and basically tells the story of the boxer in his in a novel in a book he wrote about someone uh, in a college poetry class submitting the boxer as his final exam and it's just utterly, and the teacher believes it, and it's just <laughs> utterly a hilarious, uh, hilarious story. So, so let's get back to music and away okay. from literature. Um, you you do a lot of really interesting things, um, and I was just really curious. What are you working on these days? What do you think is is going to come out next? You you always have a few albums in the. Well, I've got. The this folio I'm doing for Hal Leonard on the evolution of fingerstyle guitar, mm-hmm. which goes really from the re- Renaissance through to the early 20th century, I got some ragtime in there, and it goes through what we would call classical guitar. Mm-hmm. And what I'm trying to do is bridge the gap between classical and steel string, because from my perspective, there is no schism, no real schism there. What is the era of classical, and what is the era of well, steel string? They coexist. Mm-hmm. Um, the what we like the the players that we look to as being kind of like the founding fathers of classical guitar, like Giuliani and Saw, um, Carulli, Carcassi, those like early nineteenth century mm-hmm. players, were really just playing fingerstyle guitar. They didn't call it classical guitar, and in fact, you know, it's it's you have to be careful because we have classical in the the pure generic sense, but when you talk about musical eras, mm-hmm. classical is a very specific period, pretty much kind of uh, 1750 through 1820. Mm-hmm. You know, and Beethoven kind of straddled 
both classical and romantic eras. By the time you get to the 1820s and beyond, you're into the romantic era. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the classical canon, the whole concept of classical music being something for kind of an elite social group, right. really evolved in the 1820s. Or the early, certainly the early 19th century. What was the change at at the end of that? Well, really, look what happened politically. I mean, you have, as as the the monarchies, you know, the the impact of the monarchies was dissolving, the the civil service became much more, you know, that upper middle class bourgeoisie became much less underneath a monarch. Right. Um, Especially in France. (laughs) Well, well, France, but also, you know, specifically, I mean, Vienna was really, you know, the hotbed of of musical development in that respect. Mm -hmm. So you go from kind of Haydn to Beethoven to Schubert, you know, and Schubert was a guitar player. Oh, really? Yeah. Apparently he wrote most of his songs on guitar. Diaboli published them on piano because that was the commercial market. But guitar was extremely popular. There was guitar mania in Europe in the early 19th century. Really? But, so, but they weren't classical guitar players in, in the stylistic sense. Mm-hmm. We look at them as classical in the, the genre that we describe as classical. But really, they were fingerstyle players, from my perspective. And, and what happens by the middle of the 19th century, the guitar loses popularity because the piano has become such a dominant instrument. Right. But in America... The guitar became very popular. Guitar and banjo were extremely popular. Um, and so kind of the focus shifts to that. Uh, and there were great players, you know, and a lot of them played Martin guitars too. I mean, Martin was really kind of the instrument of choice of the American, what they call parlor music. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not a derogatory term. Parlor music is really like classical music mm-hmm. um, and a very specifically kind of middle-class kind of musical experience because there was no recorded music so you would play in the parlor you would play the piano if you could afford one or a guitar if you couldn't afford a piano or Mm -hmm. sometimes both Um, so there's a continuity about all of this but my argument is you don't have to look at it through the Segovia paradigm Segovia well Segovia brought the gravitas to the, to the promotion of the instrument that allowed it to exist in the classical concert hall. Mm-hmm. But guitar, was, guitar music was played in all kinds of concert environments before and during Segovia's era. And, and in the 20th century in America, you get steel strings came into play because gut strings were very unreliable and nylon mm-hmm. really didn't get used for guitar strings till the 1940s. Um, and so... But the stylistic aspect of it tended to gravitate much more towards jazz and blues and everything else. But, but my argument is that if you want to understand the music, you don't have to be restricted to be playing on a nylon string guitar mm-hmm. with, you know, with your left, left leg up on a footstool and the guitar in a very specific position that you can, you can play this music on any guitar. And, and you know, so like Bach... <laughs> doesn't have to be played on a nylon string guitar at all. So I'm kind of gearing what I'm doing in that respect with this folio to steel string players. So what is a folio? How do you, how do you define that? A folio that? is just a collection of sheet music. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's a book. Are you going to put it out in musical version as well? Well, I w- I'm, I'm going to do an album 
to go along with it, which mm-hmm. is a challenge because I have to learn all these Renaissance and Baroque loop pieces and some fairly heavy-duty kind of classical stuff. I have confidence that you'll be able to do that. I have confidence I will too. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm also working on a collection of standards. American, um, Anglo-American American, standards? Uh, yeah, mostly American. I mean, you know, for example, Jimmy McHugh. Not familiar. Not familiar. You know his songs. Sure. Yeah, I can't give you anything but love. Mm-hmm. Written just down the street. Right. You know, it's just in that he and Dorothy Fields were walking down Fifth Avenue and overheard a, a, this is, you know, depths of the depression. Well, actually, late 20s. It was like right after the stock market crash. And they hear a overhear a, a, a young guy talking to his girlfriend looking in the, the window at Tiffany's saying I can't give you anything but love baby and, and that's they a ran song. off and wrote the song sure. yeah. um, although there is a theory that, that uh, Fats Waller had something to do with it musically too and sold them his contribution but the, uh, the Tiffany so- story sounds uh, much more romantic it's very romantic yeah. <laughs> um, yeah he wrote I'm in the mood for love he um, he was actually wiped out by the stock market crash and was walking down the street here in Manhattan and ran into George Gershwin and mm-hmm. Gershwin said, "Can I? You know, do you need anything?" And and he said, "I could use a piano." <laughs> so Gershwin gave him a piano. Which, oh, really? Which his grandson Lee still has in his office in, um, in Gershwin's a, piano. Uh, well, Gersh, well, Jimmy McHugh's piano from donated Gershwin, by right. Gershwin. Um, and first thing he wrote on that was I'm in the mood for love, which, you know, put him back on his feet. I, I would say so. <laughs> yeah. So, so who else are you looking at as oh, songwriters, and, you know, the greater, so uh, many years ago, I got a gift from somebody, which was Ella Fitzgerald sings the great American songbook. Uh-huh. And I think it's something like 16 or 26 CDs and each CD wow. or so mm-hmm. is a different songwriter. So right. it's Gershwin. Um, and Berlin and Jerome Kearns and go down the whole right. the whole list. I, I think Berlin is is two song two discs and Gershwin might be four discs, but it's just mm-hmm. one after another. Yeah. And it's every fantastic. So how do you take that enormous collection oh, it's of just, great music, and, just favorite songs yeah. and, and stuff that just feels right mm-hmm. on the guitar? Um, you know, it's, I, I like Bernstein. I mean, like you know. just fits on the guitar so sure. nicely and and and, it's, and it, the original is in e mm-hmm. which is you know a very guitaristic key um so stuff like that i, I i'm just not sure i know that there's there's going to be a, a music book to go along with that too so how how these end up getting released in terms of whether it's just going to be a digital release mm-hmm. or uh, whether it's going to be a CD. CDs are really only useful for show merchandise at this point because mm-hmm. people don't buy CDs. I'm one of the few. I am now old enough that I have a a big boy audio system uh-huh. that I wish I had when I was 19. Mm-hmm. And when a, a, a CD that I'm particularly enamored with comes out, I pop it in and I just Wouldn't you there. rather buy it on vinyl though? No, because I'm too irresponsible to take oh. care of a record in the proper way. Right. Uh, the CD, I just feed it into the machine. The vinyl sounds so much better. <laughs> if you don't have scratches, pops, hisses, well, yeah, if you take care of it, yeah. uh, and it's one eighty gram vinyl, and you know you keep it clean. And, mm-hmm. yeah. 
That yeah. listen, vinyl is selling these days. I don't have the patience or the storage for it. I did a an album about ten, actually more than ten years ago now, um, Guitar Noir. That mm-hmm. was uh, for AIX Records, which was a high-resolution DVD audio mm-hmm. project. So that is a great-sounding project. That's an album and a song, if I remember correctly. Yeah, isn't that, it? well, I wrote that song as like the title track for that particular project. Give us a few seconds oh, of Guitar I'm, Noir. You're I'm not in totally the right in tuning. the right, wrong tuning. For that. <laughs> that's, yeah. a, that's a CGDGAD tuning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that... You know that high-end audio thing. I mean, it's in fact you, you you go into a like an audiophile store and you'll probably see them playing it because really it, it gets used for demo. I, I want a demi award. Really? Said, what the hell's a demi award? Well, demos it, for yeah, the consumer electronics people have this demi award, which is you know it's stuff that's great for demoing expensive huh. equipment. That that's really interesting. Yeah. The my my store of choice is Park Avenue Audio. Um, and I always bring these CDs, and I'm so excited to use. And I put them on these hundred thousand dollars systems, mm-hmm. and they sound terrible. Well, next time <laughs> you go in there, ask them if they have. I'm sure they will. They'll guitar have noir. guitar noir, and ask. Now them I have that. the regular CD of guitar noir. Is that something? That... No, the, there's a track on. Um, my wooden horses CD. Mm-hmm. That, that I did a solo version of it, mm-hmm. but the but the real the real version to listen to is the one. The high and the, end. the mosaic track on that um, actually got licensed by, I think it was Pioneer licensed it for the, the discs that came with it in car, super hi-fi system huh. too. That, that's quite interesting. So I only have you for a finite amount of, of time. Let me get my, uh, my new, f- I got a new phone just for, for you today. Oh, isn't that nice? Um, yes, I'm going to allow myself to log in. What do you feel like playing today? Oh, I have no idea. Um, I'm in standard tuning. Oh, you know what? No, you're in dad guy. No, I'm in standard. You went back. Let me. I'll do. I'll do. I can't give you anything but love because I have to be in that mode. You ready? Nope. Um. All right, we are recording.
great fall. <laughs> so I'm going to put this down now. So here's the question sure. that is very much related to the process of turning what was once a classical American songbook, really a great American songbook type of tune into an acoustic guitar piece. Take us through how you you go through that transition. Well, with that one, it really was just to just make it musical. Mm-hmm. And, and adding to that the notion that I'm really pushing myself to improvise more. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I state the theme and then I'm improvising. Mm-hmm. And I'm just kind of trying to keep myself on a particular kind of track with that. But, I mean... There's, there's the concept that we have of, of um, alternate bass. Okay. Where you, and, and this goes back really like to the Ken, what they call Kentucky thumb picking, like Mel Travis and then Chet Atkins. Where Chet you, Atkins, I know. Mel Travis is before my... Mm-hmm. The, this kind of idea that... So there's always this kind of... This is kind of like mm-hmm. rolling thing going on right. to create the accompaniment. So making that work and keeping a groove going, but also looking for kind of voicings. Mm-hmm. No tremolo bar. <laughs> the virtual whammy bar. You're using it with your uh, arm yeah. instead. Of... Looking for that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. And this know? is standard tuning. Yeah, I'm in standard tuning. But what I'm doing there, like I'm using open strings. Mm-hmm. You get these kind of interesting dissonances, you know. So stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know. Stand. I'm kind of pushing myself to do more in standard tuning, to bring into it stuff that I've learned from being in auto tunings. Uh-huh. You know, just again, just trying to push the envelope to be, to stay on my game. <laughs> what What sort of songs have uh, from that songbook have you been looking at? Um, to include in in the folio. On the uh, let's see. Right now, and th- these won't necessarily make the final cut, but you know, Limehouse Blues, mm-hmm. um, George Shearing's uh, Lullaby of Birdland. Sure. Um, you know, not a standard tuner. No, some of the stuff is in Dagad. Summertime. Sure, um, I love that. A foggy song. day in London town. Which I'm particularly fond of because that was when I was born. Was <laughs> a foggy day in London mm-hmm. town, um, and uh, misty uh, willow weep for me. It's a great song. Yeah. I mean, I've done you know in the past I've done things like Cry Me a River and George. I love the Julie London version of Cry Me a River. Well, yeah, Arthur Hamilton liked that. <laughs> he wrote the song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Bonnie Kessel's playing guitar on that. Uh huh. The request has come for. Do you know "Wicked Game" by Chris Isaac? No. It's way too late for. Way too late for me. <laughs> no, I mean, it'll be like. So you're giving Willow a very bluesy flavor. Well, it is a bluesy song. Is it? Because the way you hear it in the traditional arrangement no, isn't I, quite that bluesy. Yeah, I mean, I I tend to want to make things bluesy. Uh-huh. Um, you know, but like... See, now, for example, there, I'm in B-flat. Right. 
And I'm in Dadgad, or at least I would be if I was properly in tune. And you don't even bother with the uh, the other tuner. You I've got this one stuck on the, the end of the guitar mm -hmm. here. So. Oh, there we are. Okay. So you get these voicings. Sounds like it was written for guitar. Well, that's what I try and do is make it sound natural on the instrument. Actually, so I could you know, mm -hmm. just playing around, thinking somewhat pianistically with that. So, do you go out and listen to different versions of these songs? Yeah. So let me make YouTube's a, handy for that. Apple Music is handy for that. So too. let me make a recommendation for summertime. Okay. We may have discussed this previously. There is a young woman named Renee Olstead uh -huh. who was an actor on a uh, sitcom whose name escapes me at the moment. And she does, she was like 16 or 17. And it's one of those far too mature for her years uh -huh. version that's like, wow, when you get a moment, listen to that. Because it just, uh -huh. and she adds a little bit of a, a, a slinky blues vibe to it. That you know that that isn't in the Ella version. Well, here's, I mean, what I'm doing with summertime. Should I be recording this? No, that's <laughs> I, I mean, I'm just going to give you a little example. A working. Uh, See, this actually, this is the guitar. No, that this is the guitar noir tuning. Right. But summertime. That's got a really bluesy flavor to oh, yeah. it. Well, it's Much a blues smokier song. than well, when you hear when you hear a, a someone really belt it out, it doesn't quite have the same smoky vibe. Well, but you know, my reference, my kind of cross reference mm -hmm. is like early Fleetwood Mac. Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking how would Peter Green play this? Right. Kind of, and, and also, um, uh, what else have I been? Um, uh, I only have eyes for you. Okay, another, another grade. That's in this tuning. Too. Hang on, I have to remember. 
remember it. I'm thinking, I'm thinking almost like Ravel. Uh -huh. kind of so totally works you know i think we talked about derek thompson's book last time you were here how hits happen it's not just about music it's about music books architecture engineering and he's fond of pointing out that if you want to sell something different you have to make it familiar and if you want to sell something familiar you have to make, make it a it little different. different yeah and and it's um i pick up a lot of that that the melody is totally recognizable. As well, the, the melody song. is key to right, but everything around it is totally different. Now, what tuning are we in here? Hang on. Uh. Another Jimmy McHugh song. Oh, really? But you see, what I look for is that kind of. Just that very musical kind of, but also the guitaristic thing, how everything rings. Mm -hmm. And then something like this, where it's dissonant, mm -hmm. but in a cool way. Yeah. Here, you can't see this on the radio. <laughs> I can, and it's way cool. It's doing two hands on the neck. A little, little Eddie Van Halen action on the... Oh, yeah. Uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Easy on, easier on electric than on an acoustic. Yeah, but you can still do it. It's just, you know, what I like doing is, is that kind of... Is doing the two-handed thing, but to get a rhythmic propulsion to it. It's not the same. No, not at all. That's pretty yeah. fascinating. What? So when do you think um, the American Standards album is coming out? Oh, next year probably. Really? So how long does it take to put something like that together? Well, it's, it's a question of, you know, the timing as far as coordinating it you know and i 
my distributor, because I have my own record label now, uh, my distributor needs two months' lead time mm -hmm. on a release. I always reckon you've got to at least have three months to record and, you know, I, and I've been working on these arrangements for you know a couple of, some of these for a couple of years. Well, that was now. the question: is yeah. how long does it take you to actually come up with the arrangement? Depends. I mean, you know, when I run, my runaway arrangement took me about ten minutes. Right. Um, what know, takes what takes longer? Uh, sometimes they just take time. I mean, like uh, Limehouse Blues. still don't know whether that's even going to make the cut. And mm -hmm. I, that's probably been one I've working on longer than anything else. I've done it in standard tuning in different keys. I've done it in Daggett in different keys. And it just, I'm not yet convinced by it. Uh -huh. um, but it's an interesting exercise. You're not yet convinced by the song. That, that's kind well, of Well, I'm not yet convinced by the arrangement. Because mm -hmm. uh, it could be... And whether it's swung or whether I... You know, done as a Latin thing or you know there's there's arranging tricks you you change the groove mm -hmm. or you change the feel and it's just I'm not sure with that one but um, and and I, we'll see how it all evolves I mean I've got some original tunes that I, I want to get recorded too I wasn't intending that the um, the stuff with all the Renaissance loop music and the ragtime you know it goes through like Scott Joplin and all uh -huh. of that I wasn't intending that was going to be kind of a releasable album but as the project evolved it kind of oh this is kind of an interesting mm -hmm. combination of tunes I wonder you know so when you're when work. you're the history of, of that has to span centuries yeah but when you're looking at something that's only a few decades i know that mm -hmm. sounds ridiculous to say that's only a few decades you still have i i want to say hundreds of songs certainly dozens and dozens well, yeah i mean there's a million of them but mm -hmm. it's just what you know what i sit down and play and it's like oh that's kind of cool and then if hope likes it you know, right. my wife because if she doesn't like it so like, you know I'll kind of well then then I can't really practice it in front of her which kind of inhibits the process of it <laughs> but you know I just I came up with an arrangement downtown great song sure it's funny Tony Hatch wrote that on the corner of Broadway he came up with the, the hook on the corner of Broadway and 48th Street on his first trip to New York not realizing that that's not he downtown, downtown. <laughs> well Midtown isn't quite as catchy uh, yeah so uh, that's a cool song does it end up being the great Anglo-American songbook? I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Well, it's certainly from that 60s pop era it you is you could release an album a decade uh, one could if, yeah. if you wanted to find stuff, yeah. uh, it might be too similar across uh, within that de each decade. But from a business point of view, I mean, the, you know, my goal is to just kind of put a lot of stuff out there because if it's out there in the streaming environment, then it can be revenue creating mm -hmm. without necessarily having to be heavily promoted. Um, we just did a re-release. Hope used to have a, a group... Um, in the 80s and early 90s called The Housewives, which okay. was a comedy rock and roll group. And they were, ABC had a morning show called The Home Show way back, and they were regulars on that. And uh -huh. They got a lot of TV exposure. Housewives is a great name for a, uh, um, a band. And slash. the album's called Get the Dirt. 
Okay. <laughs> and it's songs like Call a Repairman, um, Ironing Board, I've Been Defrosting All Day, which has a killer <laughs> harmonica solo from John Mayle, who I wish him well because he's in the hospital right mm-hmm. now. Um, and Maggie Mayle, John's ex-wife, was... Um, was in the band, and, and that Maggie May as Maggie in, Mayle, okay, you know, as in John Mayle, but Maggie uh-huh. Mayle. Um, and by the way, Maggie May is another one of those songs that is the the Gregory Walker Passamezzo Moderno sequence that I oh, mentioned really? earlier. Yeah, um, and um, that just came out, you know, and it's kind of like you know hoping it's going to get airplay on Spotify, Pandora, maybe Sirius on comedy. You because know, it's a comedy record, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and then earlier this year, I put out um, Standard Time, which is my first album that had never been released digitally, um, which was also some standards, some great American songbook stuff, but out of Paul McCartney's publishing catalog. He oh, really? asked me to record stuff out of it. So I did Stormy Weather with a 40-piece orchestra. Very cool version of that. In fact, that stuff is really hi-fi sounding. Um, and it includes my first fingerstyle composition, which is a tune called Maisie, that I actually had like Paul playing bass on because you know, we recorded it on a wing session one day. Huh, that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. So what was the name of that album? That's called Standard Time. So that's your first? And my very first album, which is not a fingerstyle guitar record except for you know, a couple of pieces mm-hmm. that are on there. Mostly but re-released digitally recently. Yeah, it's a digital, full digital. It's never been released in its entirety except as a bonus CD with my book, Guitar With Wings, mm-hmm. uh, which was not like a CD release. Um, and I always kind of like never felt truly comfortable with it being on a CD because it's such hi-fi quality. It was so well recorded, right. and that was also used for demoing equipment back, you know, way back. They somebody borrowed the tapes from uh, from Abbey Road Studios and um, ended up using them at trade shows to demonstrate tape recorders. And huh. stuff. Yeah. That, that's interesting. So I only have you for a few more minutes. Okay. Why don't we do one more song? Okay. Um, before before some guy Mike comes in and kicks us out of here, let's see if I can find. Um, all right, I got this on video. So whenever you okay. want to start, this is Catch. The title was inspired by Catch a Rising Star, which is where I met Hope in oh. April of 1981.
So um, I okay. So we have uh, we have a f- only a few more minutes left, and the peanut gallery uh-huh. is uh, requesting different songs. What did you ask for before? Classical gas? No, I don't do classical gas. N- oh, how about how about a Beatles song then? Oh sure. We we have to. Uh, by the way, that um, catch I've seen you do several times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I usually open the show. And I've that. noticed that you're you're improving a touch. In in some of it, there was a yeah. little bit that's yeah, uh, some improv. Yeah, it, is is every version of each song a little bit different? It's always a little bit different. Yeah, that's just for season of the witch. No, we're gonna go with the Beatles. Yeah, I don't last time it was I saw her standing here, and you spoke about it for six months. <laughs> oh, it was was it she loves you? It might have been she loves you. All right, so let's do something different. Well, I'll do also her standing there. There you go. Lawrence, thank you so much as always. Every time you hear it, it's always always a delight. We have been speaking with Lawrence Juber, uh, recording star, Grammy awarding uh, musician, composer, artist. You you go through the whole list. Grandpa, wow. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and check up an inch or down an inch on 
Apple iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, Bloomberg.com, wherever finer podcasts are sold, and you could see any of the other 200 or such conversations we've had previously. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these shows together each week. Medina Parwaner is our producer slash audio engineer. Taylor <laughs> Taylor Riggs is our booker. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs> <laughs>